You know, as we're reading this uh, passage about the man who built his, his house on the solid ground, there's another guy, and what did he build his house on? The sand. Well, if, if, if you're going to build a house, would you choose to build your house on the solid rock, or would you choose to build your house on the sand? Solid rock. I heard a couple people over here snidely remark that they would opt for sand. I think you're going to regret that uh, after a time, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe you've got a great piece of beachfront property. You see, there, 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 there are things that we know, and, and we just kind of notionally know them. I remember when I was studying for the GRE, and I was, man, I hadn't taken a math class in a long time. The last math class I had was, was college algebra, and so I sit down to work on the GRE, and it's talking about triangles whose names I had, had long forgotten. I knew there were a variety of shapes and forms of triangles, and I knew there was a different formula for each one for how to figure out area. You know, it's base times half of height or something like that. And for those of you who are mathematically and geometrically inclined, I'm sure you'll come and correct me at the end of the service. But I know there's all these different formulas for how these things break out and all the different, you know, uh, ways that they see together. You're supposed to be able to see this pattern. I never could. I think it's not there. I think this is something that mathematicians put together to make the rest of us feel inferior. But nonetheless, my wife's a math teacher, and she said that they're really there. And so I'm going through, and I'm trying to remember these things. I mean, I have long since forgot those formulas. I mean, I, I knew them for a time. I knew them for what was important, but I just put them out of my mind. You know, there was a, a time in my life that I knew much of the periodic, periodic table of elements. I could give you the, the, the weight of different things. I could tell you how they worked. I could tell you where the noble gases were and, and how that worked together. I don't, I don't know that anymore. I mean, I just, I know oxygen is O. I mean, that's, that's pretty good for me. You know, I, I know, you know, gold and silver, we've got some AU and some AG, I, as much as I remember. But I don't, need these things on a day-to-day basis, and many of you are very happy that I don't, seeing the way that I'm able to roll them off my tongue with such stunning recollections is that oxygen is O. And so as we think about these things, there are things that we have learned that we just don't remember. But man, there are things that we have learned that we just don't apply. I mean, we could just roll them right off of our tongue. There are things that we just absolutely know. We know backwards and forwards and and as, as much as we know that our hair parts on the right or the left, we know these things to be true. We know these things to be important. But if I were to ask you, well, how is that making an impact in your life? You'd say, well, I mean, I know it. That's a good thing. You see, having knowledge that doesn't translate into action is worthless. Having knowledge that doesn't, doesn't find itself met out in the particulars of life It's just a waste of time. And so James gives us today this passage that that goes after those of us that just want to have knowledge. We just want to have information, but there's no transformation. There's no movement in life. And he he goes after us in such an offensive way to those of us who have built up our lives, saying, it is just enough that I know these things. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25 this morning. Let me read them for us. James starts off and he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Man, that is a 
That is a full verse. He continues on in verse 22. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, this one, he will be blessed in his doing. James is driving hard at the point. Knowledge doesn't cut it. Taking this stuff in and hearing it, uh, our lives over, doesn't affect anything. See, it's only beneficial when it is applied to action. He starts off and he says, know this. You see, when James starts off in verse 19, he's not writing and saying, hey, look, you know, hold on loosely to this. Treat this like you would how to find the area of a triangle. Treat this how you would how to find the circumference of a circle. No, he doesn't go at it like that. He comes at it and he says, hey, know this. He commands them to know something, which is interesting because he's going to change that in the second half of the passage. But he begins with, know this. And he says, know that you need to be what? You need to be quick, slow, slow. I mean, this sounds like the reverse of the foxtrot. You know, slow, slow, quick, or quick, slow, slow. Or I don't do the foxtrot, but I'm sure those of you who do would correct me at the end of the service. There's a lot of correction going on today. And so he tells them that they need to be first, what, quick to hear. Now let's camp there for a second. What, is, what does this mean? When we are hearing, it means we're not talking, right? And so we are, we are engaging, we're listening to what others might have to say to us, we're taking in, we're thinking about this, we are contemplating these things, we are giving serious time, not just to, you know, getting ready for our response, getting ready for our rebuttal, but we are taking this thing in. James writes to them and he says, what I want you to understand is that you don't need to be passive in hearing, you don't need to be lethargic in hearing, but you need to be quick to hear. You need to be ready to understand. You need to be ready to take in information and process it. You need to be quick to hear. See, some years ago I was in my parents' house, everybody was uh, was gone, and so I had three or four days to myself, and so I decided that I would do a, a silent retreat. Uh, you don't find groups signing up for this because it's hard to be silent when you have many people around. And so I, I got into the house, and first thing I did was, was turn my cell phone off. I told my parents, I said, hey, look, unless you're on fire and I'm the only one that can put you out, don't call me. I'm not going to be talking during this time. You've got an answering machine, I'm going to let it go to the phone. Uh, whenever somebody calls. And so I turned my cell phone off. I turned the TV off, which was really difficult for me because my parents had satellite with all the channels that I could never afford. And, and it would have been great to sit there and watch movies for the next 36 hours. But I, I turned that off. I turned the radio off. I didn't listen to any music. I had complete silence for that entire weekend that I was there. Now, i got to be honest. The, the first 24 hours I was there... All I could hear were my thoughts so loud in my own mind. And just like none of us, or I don't anyway, like to hear my own voice, for 24 hours I was in the, the utter hell of hearing my own voice over and over again say, huh, what if that's my stomach grumbling? I don't care. Stop talking to me. And so I've, I've got this inner battle going on where I'm like, shut up. Like, you can't make me. Like, don't, don't push me. 
And because I'm trying to, to hear, I'm trying to reflect, and so I'm reading God's word. Man, I can tell you that as I engage this time and, and set, set aside time to hear from God, not to speak to God, not to cry out to him in prayer, but to read his word and to wait on God to respond. Man, it's such a rich time, such a penetrating time, waiting on the Spirit of God to prompt, guide, and direct. As God speaks to you during this time, and He reveals the course that He would have you to follow, as He speaks to you in this time, and He, he uncovers, He unearths the secret sin that you so cleverly buried. Man, we need to be quick to hear. Now, next we read something that's troubling for the most of us. He says that you need to be slow to speak. You need to be slow to speak. Now, in Proverbs 29, 20, we read that the one who is hasty with words, that there is less hope for him than the fool. It's not going good for those of us that like to talk. He says you need to be slow to speak. And we're so given to when, when somebody asks us a question that we just, man, we pop off our response immediately. I remember when Valerie and I were in Prague and, and we were leading a Bible study and for once I was leading this Bible study in Romans chapter 3 and I said, all right, read Romans 3 and then we'll talk about it. When I felt like all the students had reached the end of reading Romans 3, I said, okay, everybody's done, let's, let's go through and talk about it. And they said, oh, hold up, we've just now read it. Don't you think we should take 15 or 20 minutes and think about it? You see, I'm so programmed and I'm so given to immediate response of, of not being slow to speak because, man, I am the master of all information and I am ready to give a response. We need to be slow to speak. And lastly, he says you need to be slow to anger. Now, admittedly, this is something I struggle with. Now, for those of you who don't know me well, you're thinking, man, he's such a level-headed guy and I'm sure he never loses his cool. I'm sure he always manages to keep himself in check. But, and, and I do around the office. I mean, you can ask the people that work in the church. I'm not prone to yelling at people. I'm just not prone to doing that. I'd like to you know, keep my voice nice and soft in the office and not disturb those around me. But few things infuriate me more than when you're trying to get somewhere and you're driving on the, on the freeway, and there's somebody that's they're in the, the left lane, which we all know the left lanes for driving fast. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's for at least driving five miles per hour over the speed limit, right? I mean, you agree. They give you five. I think it says that on your driver's license. Like, obey the laws of the land, except for the speed limit. You get five more miles per hour. And so I'm, I drive back to Fort Worth occasionally for, for school, for seminars and whatnot. And there's always this person that's in the left lane, and they're taking in the majesty of God at 10 miles per hour under <laughs> the speed limit in the left lane. And I'm just like, God bless you, but man, I need a wide shoulder because I, I need to keep moving down the road. And so it, it, it wells in me this feeling of anger and of mistreatment and just bitterness towards this person. And I want to bless them so bad. <laughs> right in their bumper. But I'm doing like 65 anyway, so it's not a good idea. And so I, I, I have trouble not being quick to anger. Now, you might be the saint on the road and you have five of the Jesus fish on the back of your car to, to ensure 
that you're doing a good job. You even have Ridgecrest Baptist Church and and your phone number to ensure that you're a good person on the highway. That's not me. I don't even have a decal on the back of my car. In fact, I've been looking at other churches' bumper stickers to put on the back. And so it's this, this idea that it is hard for me not to just, just pop off. It's hard for me not to give an anger because we have these ideas that we are justified in our anger. Man, we have in us this idea that we are justified in those times that we pop off. We are justified in defending ourselves. We are justified in coming out against other people. And so often when we do that, man, we label it, that I'm speaking in love, but it is nothing more than anger spilled forth because of our inability to control our emotions, our inability to control our tongue. James writes, and he has this this difficult word where he intensifies it in verse 20. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see those times when we allow anger to spill forth, those times when we just can't handle it anymore and we just erupt in this tirade and we 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 make somebody into the representation of the mental midget that we all know that they are and we spill forth this this beautiful tirade of well-crafted prose and and they hear it and, and and they just shrink smaller and smaller and smaller the word from james is man when you engage in that behavior you're not living up to the standard of righteousness that god calls you to You see, it's not just that, man, you've offended the brother, you need to go and make restitution to them. It's not just that you need to to work on your anger. But what he writes to us in verse 20 is that the anger of man, this feeling which wells up deep inside of us, the anger of man does not produce, it doesn't measure up to the righteousness of God. Do you see the difficulty it is to be a Christian? Then in those times where I'm driving on 30 and the guy in the left lane's cruising along, it, you know, I mean, I'm like, man, the speed limit says 75. You could do at least 80, 85 before anybody gives you a problem. But this guy's doing 65. In those times, man, we've got to remember that God's righteousness should be displayed in our lives, that God's holy instruction to us should be manifest, not just in the way that we engage in speech with one another, but should be manifest in our actions and even unfortunately for me in our driving and so he gets into verse 21 and he says therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls he gets into verse 21 and james starts giving us some some direction for how we accomplish this He says, therefore, put away this stuff. James paints the picture of, and the word he uses there gives us the idea that we're about to engage in vigorous activity. Now, when I worked at Southwestern, I I had to wear a suit and tie every day. That was was the way that I had to dress at work, and and probably the way that I dress here is a reaction against that. I, I, I don't like to feel like I'm constantly being choked, and so I don't wear a tie very much. I mean... If, if I liked that, then I would still do it. I really want to wear bow ties. My wife says, that's just kind of creepy at your age. And so I don't do it. But if, if I'm going to engage in rigorous activity, and there were times where I worked in, in catering, and we'd have to carry a lot of stuff from one place to another. I mean, I've got my jacket on, and I've got my tie all cinched up, and, and I, am, 
I am dying in those times because we've got to move and we've got to move fast. And time is of the essence. And so I'd reach over and I'm taking the jacket off and I'm undoing the tie and I'm tucking it in to keep it from getting in my way. You see, when we move against these things, we are stripping ourselves of those things that tie us up for action. We're stripping away these things that tie, tie us down and keep us from moving to action. He says you need to put off all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We need to put off moral filth. We need to put off lustful thoughts. We need to put off grieve. We need to put off envy. We need to put off all these things that God is working to convict us of in our lives. You see, there are many of us as we sit here, we say, man, I don't, I don't engage in those things. I don't, I, don't, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't hang with girls that do. I don't, I don't get involved in these things, and so I don't, I'm not struggling with this. You know, it makes me think yesterday I was I was washing the cars, and for whatever reason, Bryce loves to wash the car. I think this is something his mom must have sung to him at night. You know, every day you'll wash my car, you'll make it clean. <laughs> Rockabye baby in the tree. You know, I'm not sure why he likes it, but, but he does. He loves getting out. He loves washing the car. And I've got, I've got a white car, and, and I, I just kept saying, my car's a little dirty. And every time somebody would get in the car with me, I'd be like, you've got to excuse this mess. You know, I, I commute back and forth to Fort Worth occasionally. And, and, and steadily, that didn't come to mean anything, but my, my car's a landfill, y'all. My car has, has stuff growing in it. My car has, is a separate ecosystem for all the things that are growing in there. And so we're, we're out there, and we're washing the car, and I'm scrubbing and scrubbing. And I, I should be at white by now, but I'm at kind of a light gray. And I, I finally get it down to the white, and I begin to think, man, there's such a stark contrast between the whiteness of this car and what I used to describe as being a little dirty. I mean, my car was a testimony to the power of the Tide Pen. That Every time you touched against it, you got to see just how well that Tide Pen worked. But as I'm working against this, I begin to ask myself the question, I'm like, how is my car so dirty? Maybe you've asked yourself the same question. You start going through it, you're like, has it rained lately? Well, you know, I haven't been driving through mud puddles. I don't live on a dirt road. Why is my car so dirty? And you start thinking, well, you know, I mean, I, I drive back and forth. And that dust gets stirred up, and it gets on the car, and then the rain comes along, and it washes the dirt down. And the sun comes out, and it bakes it back on the car. And that process happens over and over and over again. You should not, we're not driving through complete filth. We're not driving down a dirt road or a muddy road, but just being out in this thing, it accumulates filth. Man, it is increasingly more and more difficult to live in this country without going out and being accosted, but without being affronted, without seeing all these things that are moral filth. I mean, you go to the grocery store and you check out in the line, and there are probably six or seven magazines that as soon as you look at that thing, filth is just washing over you. Or you watch commercials on television and you're just getting, you're like, man, I don't, I don't even know what was going on. I was watching My Little Pony with Bryce and the next thing I know it's, you know, Victoria's Secret's commercial coming on. I'm like, well, this is Nick Jr. You got to be kidding me. You see, we continually have these things accost us. We continually have these things wash over us. And so the way that James writes it here, 
we need to be continually putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness. See, we need to be doing these things, but the command in here is to receive with meekness the implanted word. See, as we're receiving the gospel into our lives, as it's making a more and more pronounced impact on the way we live our lives, we are steadily recognizing the filth all around us and putting it off. The unwholesome speech that we so easily engage in, and we're pushing it off. Those ideas and thoughts we have towards those around us, and we're pushing it off. The evil that's so insidious and so inborn and so desires to run rampant in our lives, and we are putting it off. We're casting it off. You see, James Reinstein says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. James shows us the demeanor that we, that we assume when we stand before God. You see, it's not this hand-on-hip foot-stomping where we say, where is it? When are you going to give it to me? But it is very much this laying down on the ground, prostrate, with our face buried and our palms up in submission. And we take the posture of humility, we take the posture of meekness, as God causes the gospel and the power of the gospel to continue to grow more and more evident in our lives and reclaim that territory that which we have surrendered to moral filth and rampant wickedness. God is at work in our members, and we need to be at work putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We need to be at work putting off those things which corrupt, those things which decay. Now James writes, and, and the, the church history over people have had a, a problem when it comes to James because if you read James n- not very carefully, then you read that it's a works-based faith if, if you're not reading carefully because he continually beats the drum. Man, you need to be doing something. You need to be doing something. And so there was this reaction against this in Luther and others that when they read this, they had a hard, they had a hard time accepting James's injunction towards behavior. You see, James understands faith, that faith when it is genuine, works. Not that we're working to ensure that we're saved, but we are working, we are doing things because we are saved. We are working, we are doing things because that's what real faith does. Real faith manifests itself in action. Real faith manifests itself in deed. And that's what he shows us here. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Whoa! you got to be kidding me. James tells us essentially that if, if, if you're content just to hear and just to know that you're self-deceived. This is such an offensive thing that he says. You see, he says that if you're content just to live like this, not that just you're, you're you know, un, uh, unacquainted with the real answer, but that you are actively deceiving yourself. You're working against yourself to lead yourself to a wrong conclusion. He says you're self-deceived. You see, for, for many of us, as we sit here and as we've gone to church our entire lives, and we are hearing, and we are hearing, 
and we are here, and we are growing in knowledge, and we've probably still got that, that poster hanging up in our bedroom that says, you know, Bible Drill Champion 1983, you've got that one, and, you, and somebody else is like, well, man, I was Bible Drill Champion of 85 through 87, and so we've built in this idea that it is, it is better to know these things. See, knowledge is worthless if it doesn't translate to action. You see, you can come here Sunday in and Sunday out. You can leave here and go to a church that meets on Sunday evening. You can, you can go to a Seventh-day Adventist church that meets on Saturday. You can listen to podcasts all day long of your favorite preacher. You can read the Bible in three languages. But if you don't do something as a result of it, you're deceiving yourself. You see, we should never have a problem filling Sunday school teachers. We should never have a problem filling roles in the nursery. We should never have a problem getting someone to help out, be it benevolence, be it those who are in the hospital, or be it anything. Because our faith should be so bound up in driving us to action that the mere thought of inaction, the mere thought that we could sit back and passively say, I did my part. I came Sunday morning, I gave a little bit of money, I sat and listened to this guy talk for 30 minutes or so, and I know a lot as a result of it. Man, that's empty. That's completely contrary to the gospel. That's completely contrary to the things we see, not only in James, but also in the life of Jesus, who we read in 2 Timothy 5-11 did not consider himself one who came to exert his authority over others, but he lowered himself and he became as a servant. You see, Jesus gives us a pattern of servitude. Jesus gives us a pattern of service to others. Don't be a hearer only and so deceive yourself, but be a doer of the word. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You see, James compares us to this person who looks in the mirror, who observes himself, and then just goes away and doesn't remember at all what he was like. Now, we, we know, we recognize that mirrors in the day that James wrote this weren't as prevalent. They didn't look like our mirrors. They weren't this highly polished piece that we set up there and we can see exactly all the imperfections that we hope others don't see as much. And, and, and they didn't work that way. And so what they would have likely is a polished piece of metal that they would hold up, but they could still get an idea of what they look like. They could still look at it and have a, a complete understanding that, man, I've got a mole here and a mole here, and I've got this odd hair that grows right there that I have to pluck every month or so. But the person who looks at that image the person who looks at it and recognizes himself and then walks away and doesn't remember a thing about it, that's exactly what it's like when you hear the Word of God, but it doesn't lead to action. Do you realize the stark thing? Do you realize the difficult thing that James is telling us? That if you could look in a mirror and walk away and, and, and not remember what you look like, it is the same thing of having engaged the Word of God and having it not result in change. He said he goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But then he changes it. He shows us in verse 25 the height of it all. He says, 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, just like when we look in the mirror and we perceive those things about ourselves, and we recognize those things about ourselves, when we look at God's Word, when we, when we pick up God's Word and we are quick to hear what He would say to us, when we're slow to speak because we are continually waiting on His response, and when we gaze intently at His perfect law, at the Torah, at the, the perfection of that that Jesus offers, when we gaze intently at that, there's a change that takes place. There's an intense change that takes place when we do these things, and when we do that, we become more than a hearer who forgets. And instead, we become a doer who acts. And the word to him is that you will be blessed in your doing. You see, James isn't writing and saying that as you go out and you do stuff, as you serve in the nursery and as you take the gospel to the far reaches of the world and as you visit people in the hospital and as you visit people in the nursing home, that you're going to get a, a blessing as a result of that, that you do this and God turns around and blesses you on the other hand. But he's pointing at an end of times blessing. That God is at work in you and doing something far greater than you could imagine. And the blessing we receive is the steadfast love of God. The blessing we receive will be bestowed upon us when Christ returns and when he rights every wrong. See, the question before us today is where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself solely content with being one, who's, one who hears the word? Or has God led you to the type of faith, a genuine faith, that is no longer content to hear only, but to allow that hearing to be transformed to action? Because that is what James says is true faith. This morning we look at Look at two questions. James has stated clearly that our faith is not effective in hearing only, but it must be a faith that calls to action. What is your faith leading you to do? You know, we read in Hebrews 10.24 and elsewhere that we should be looking at those around us and spurring them on to engagement in community life. How can you be at work and those around you helping them to move from being a hearer to a doer? Let me pray for us.